Okay, you ready for class? All right. It was 1998. Dr. Bob and I were trying a case uh, uh, in a nearby county. It was an asbestos case. A fella, or actually a number of people who had a scarring in their lungs, a disease called asbestosis. And I was getting ready to put the doctor on the stand the next day to explain this disease and how asbestos had caused the scarring in these 21 folks' lungs. So I asked the doctor that question. Would you please explain to me, this is the night before, this is not in front of the jury, but the night before we get ready, right? Would you please explain to me how asbestos scars the lungs? And he looked at me like I was a bozo. And he said, well, that's simple. It's pulmonary alveolar macrophages. I sat there waiting for more. And he was done. And I said... Pulmonary what? Pulmonary alveolar macrophages. I said, I'm going to be honest with you. My degree is in Greek and Hebrew, and that means absolutely nothing to me. Um, <laughs> I said, can, can you give me a little medicine to go with it? Well, he explained it. It probably felt like an eternity to him, but Bob and I worked through it, and Bob and I finally figured out how to explain to the jury that asbestos causes scarring in the lungs. We had a big old tablet at trial, and uh, we explained it as follows. You have pulmonary, oops, pulmonary alveolar macrophages, or as we decided to call it, PAM. And you got these Pam things running around in your body. And because it's a girl, we put hair on her. So Pam is running around in your body. And what Pam's job is, is to find foreign invaders and kill them. And Pam, as she's running around your body, let's give Pam a little better look. Pam, as she's running around your body, actually carries a purse. And in her purse... She has lots of little toxic poisons. So she finds an invader in your body. She says, hmm, that doesn't belong here. Think I'll kill it. Reaches into her purse for a toxin, throws it on there, kablooey, and hopefully it kills it. But sometimes it doesn't. So she reaches in, grabs another one, kablooey. And after a while, she's just not able to kill some of these substances, namely asbestos, which is like indestructible. And so what she does is she just impales herself on it, bam, and falls down. So she impales herself on the asbestos, and when she does, her purse with all those toxins, it just oozes out. And the net result is, on that asbestos fiber that she impales herself on, there is a scar that develops. And then another Pam comes along. And says, hey, under that scar, there's some asbestos. I better kill it. And the same process repeats itself. And over a period of about 20 years, these scars get big enough to where your lungs can no longer process oxygen. Now, that made sense to me. And I could explain that to the jury. And that made sense out of pulmonary alveolar macrophages. Now, what does that have to do with class. Well, question. Who is God? 
I'm asking. Come on, I'll take suggestions. Who is God? Nobody say Pam, that'd be blasphemy. But he made Pam. Okay, who's God? Creator. Give me some more without looking at your notes. Great I am. Alpha and Omega, which means, I guess, the beginning and the end. That's like our A to Z. Sovereign. Say it again. Lamb of God, which means we're looking at Jesus. That's right. Whoops. Father, which means, I guess, the progenitor. Yahweh which actually is Hebrew for I am. No, no, that's good. That's good. That's good. In fact, we can even write. See, now you're in my area. I can put it in Hebrew. It's not like pulmonary alveolar macrophages. I actually know something about this. Um, well, if we were to go to uh, something, uh, uh, I pulled out the definition out of the New Catholic Encyclopedia because it's actually a marvelous definition. This is what it defines God as, the supreme being. Y'all got that sort of. Provident conserver and governor of the universe. He not only conserves it and keeps the universe going, but, but he governs it. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. He's free. No one dictates the motions of God. He's the creator to whom creatures owe homage, respect, and obedience. He's the sovereign good. He's good in an ultimate sense. He's the supernatural source of revelation. He's the Godhead composed of the three divine persons in one divine nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's an incredible definition of God. Now, what we want to focus about in this class, and what we're going to focus on, I think, for the next three weeks, counting this week, is what does Paul write and what does Paul say about God. And for this, I hope you got two handouts this morning, a handout of the lesson and the second handout, which looks something like this, Paul's verses on God. And what we've done is reproduced for you from the writings of Paul. It doesn't include what Paul said about God in Acts. But from the writings of Paul, every verse where Paul uses the word God. Now, there are some verses where he talks about God calling him something different, uh, 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 Father, uh, Lord, uh, um, but this gives you over 500 of these usages every time he uses the word God. This is going to come in to importance when I give you your homework. Now, what does Paul write and say about God? Well, today we're going to study specifically one part of what Paul says about God, and it's going to be our Greek word for the day. Are you ready for Greek? Greek word for the day is anthropomorphize. Anthropomorphize. Say it with me. Anthropomorphize. Okay, that may sound really, really terrible, but it's not. If you recall this slide from last week where we talked about the ologies, we said Greek word anthropos means man. If you put it together, you get anthropology. Remember that slide, those of you who were here? Okay, remember that. Greek word for anthropos 
I mean, the Greek word for man is anthropos, right? So to anthropomorphize is to anthropomorphize. It's to take a human, a man, anthropos, and morph it or have it take the form of an, uh, uh, onto a non-human, if you will. It's like this. Anthropos, man, bam, plus morphe equals. The wonderful thing about tickles, the tickles are wonderful things. The tops are made out of rubber, the bottoms are made out of springs. The bouncy, trouncy, flouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. But the most wonderful thing about tickles is I'm the only one. Now, that's an anthropomorphism. That's taking human characteristics and putting them onto a non-human. Because, you see, tigers really don't sing. And they really don't dance. And they really don't play with poo bears. And it isn't just A.A. Uh, uh, um, a. Milne. Isn't that who did Winnie the Pooh? It, it wasn't just A.A. A. Milne who did it. Uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. I'm late, I'm late. There really aren't rabbits running around with stopwatches singing. Or if you remember uh, um, uh, Anthropomorphism's um, Watership Down. That's, uh, uh, as my children call it, a chapter book um, for adults. But it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's taking human traits and putting them on a non-human. It's an anthropomorphism. It's taking human things and morphing it onto a non-human. Okay? Ascribing human forms to non-humans. Are you all with me on an anthropomorphism? You have just become first-rate theological scholars then. Because this is a huge issue in the Bible. Anthropomorphisms are wonderful. That's what I did with the pulmonary alveolar macrophage. I turned it into Pam and talked about her roaming the body with her purse, seeking to kill and destroy foreign invaders. I took something non-human and ascribed human characteristics to it to better teach it. For example, an example that Charles Mickey reminded me of, of one of my teachers that he gave way back a long time ago when I was a kid. He said, can you imagine how you need to understand things that maybe you don't have the vocabulary and experience to understand? Um, for example, you take a boy from the country who's never been to the city, and he hangs around with boys that have never been to the city. Country, country, country. Never seen anything with a population greater than 50. This boy from the country closes his eyes and is whisked away to New York City. And then he goes back to the country and tries to describe it to his friends. Well, he might talk about these buildings that are kind of like silos, except even bigger. And they got silos with windows in them. And they've got barns crammed up against barns, crammed up against barns with no fields or pastures. Or can you imagine if you took a woman who had twins within her womb and through some miracle of modern science you're able to remove one of those twins out, take that twin out of the womb and let him spend five years knowing the world. And then put the twin back in the womb. All right, I, I admit this is not really medically possible. Um... <laughs> Put the twin back in the room and have him explain the world to the remaining twin that stayed in the womb. Just doesn't have the vocabulary for it. How does 
does John have his revelation of God in heaven and explain it to us using earthly terms? That's the problem. So as man has tried to understand God and as God has revealed himself to man, it's frequently been done with anthropomorphisms because we just haven't lived in the city to see the city. So anthropomorphisms are found, for example, in the Old Testament. Now Paul was a Jew and he was a very devout Jew who was very well studied. And when we read Paul's writings, we never see Paul in his writings say, let me tell you about God. Because Paul's always writing his letters to people who already know about God. So we've got to try and take Paul. Now we'll have one of his speeches we'll look at where he speaks to pagans that don't know God at all. But aside from that speech out of Acts, from Paul's writings, we're going to discern what he says about God by reading it. This is going to be some of our homework. Okay? But for Paul, the scriptures are where he went. He was a devout Jew. He says the Old Testament was breathed by God. By the way, that's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't really need oxygen to exist. God doesn't breathe in the way we do. But that Timothy passage where Paul says all scripture is inspired by God, that's an older translation. It literally means God breathed. Theopneumatos, God breathed. The, the, the scriptures come out of God's utterances, breath. It's an anthropomorphism. It's ascribing to God a human characteristic so we can better understand him because we think in human terms. But Paul sees scripture that way. Paul was well aware of the creation account. God created man in his own image. We read Genesis 1.27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, you all know that scripture, don't you? Hey, you know the problem with humanity? After that event, humanity and the history of humanity is flipping the creation. It's now where man's creating God in his own image. Man creates God in the image of man. Male and female. Now you sit there and say, well, we don't have male and female gods created by man today. That was just in Paul's time. With the, uh, you know, you had Athena, you had uh, 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 Zeus, you had any number of gods. Um, this has always been a human problem. God makes us in His image, but we have spent history remaking God in ours. And we want God to be what we think He should be. And we want God to have the characteristics and attributes we want Him to have. And humanity has unfortunately spent much of its time trying to make God what we want God to be instead of understanding that God pre-existed and made us what we are. Does that make sense? It's not fair to use the anthropomorphisms of the Bible where the Bible talks about God in human terms and think that gives us liberty to make God into a human. It doesn't. It's a communication technique God used. So Paul, for example, lives at a time where the Egyptians worshipped Ra, a bird-like sun god. Lives in a time where you could go to see the temple of Zeus. Lives at a time where 
Yes, little children, Poseidon is not really a god. He was a creation from the mind of man as man tried to make God in man's image. Paul says it. Paul says in Romans that they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshipped the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. Now, here's the problem. We become like the things we worship. So we want God to be what we want as opposed to studying God to see who He is. Let me say that again. We become like the things we worship. What you put value and stock in is what you'll try to be like. Oh, we see it easiest in the kids. But it's not just in which tennis shoes you buy for which athlete you support. We want to be like the things that we think are cool, neat, valuable, and worthwhile. And so the problem we've got now is we're creating God in our image of what we think is valuable. And, and basically, we're making idols. Paul hadn't seen the movie, but he read the book. And he knew the commandment, you shall not make for yourself any carved image. God made it clear that while God might use, through Scripture, anthropomorphisms to teach who he is, it never gives man the freedom to create God the way we think he should be. Let me give you some examples. We have 14 minutes. We're going to cruise. Fasten your seatbelt. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 10. Well, it starts in 9. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. So God has hands? No, that's not what that means. That's, that's an anthropomorphism. That's God revealing to us that in the sense that we think of hands, He's there to hold us and take care of us. So, for example... Later on in the psalm, when he says um, in verse uh, 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were for me. Does this mean God has x-ray vision with eyes, like Superman, that can penetrate a lady's womb and see what the child looks like? No, it means that God sees and knows, but it's not a reference to the fact that this is not a claim that God really has physical eyes. Jesus said God the Father is spirit. And those who worship Him, worship Him in spirit and in truth. The same, so what God's trying to do here is convey a point. You know, it's like uh, Jeremiah 9 verse 12. To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken? Well, it's not that God has a mouth. He's conveying that God communicates. By the same token, you can find it in other places. You can read in, in Genesis, in the very early going, about the Lord... Oops, Genesis 6.6. 6. Let's see if we can get that to work. And the Lord was sorry that He made man 
that's better, on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Okay. By the same token, how about this one? 8-1, Genesis 8-1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts. Is, is God trying to tell us sometimes he forgets and needs to remember? Sometimes his eyes are covered, maybe. He doesn't see or his ears get clogged up. He gets ear infections. No, these are anthropomorphisms in the Bible. This is the Bible. This is God trying to reveal himself to us in language we understand. But God specifically says, don't ever try and create some image of me, even based on what I've told you, because you won't get it right. And it's idolatry once you start trying to make God. We don't define God. God defines himself. As Paul says, it's not like Zeus. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Don't go making him. Paul, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. That's God. That's not something we can just create. Now, I was walking down the street of New York City earlier this week, and I was walking with a friend of mine. And I said to my friend, you've just given me an illustration I can use in class. Because my friend started telling me, you know, the picture of God I've got here is, that I'm, I'm hearing about doesn't fit my picture of God. My picture of God is one that, that's, uh, and he goes on and on. And I said, I'm going to use that. Because inside, if I hadn't been lugging a 50-pound briefcase and we hadn't been in a hurry, I would have said to him, okay, so where do you get your vision of God from? Because we only know of God what God has revealed of himself to us through Scripture. That's the reliable source of revelation. Oh, the depths, Paul says, of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. We only know what God has chosen to reveal. Beyond that, we're creating a God in our image of what we think he should be. And we're constructing an idol. And a false one. Does this make sense? So now we'll go to where Paul stands up and he speaks to an assembled group of Athenian philosophers. Acts chapter 17. Now these are Greeks who don't have a Jewish concept of God at all. They know about the collection of gods in all of the temples, the pantheon, Zeus and Apollos and Poseidon and all of those. And it's before them that Paul proclaims the God who made the world and everything in it. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in these little houses you've made him. Doesn't live in temples made by man. And he's not served by man. That word served is a great word. We get therapeutic from it. It's therapeutuo. It means when you're walking by a temple or a god and you accidentally brush up against its nose and knock the nose off, someone comes in to pick up the nose of the god and to glue it back on to, to heal it. 
to, to fix it. Okay? Paul says, you know, the God who made everything really doesn't need you to run around and fix him when he breaks. Okay? He doesn't live in temples made by man. He's not fixed by human hands as though he needs fixing. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, God, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God's not what we make Him. In these times of ignorance, God's overlooked, but now He commands men everywhere to repent, to turn away, to change the way they think about Him and what He's done. Because He's fixed a day on which He'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He's appointed. And of this... He's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, with that background, we can consider how Paul anthropomorphizes God. Paul doesn't give him a nose and ears and mouth. Though Paul will speak of the oracles of God, of the Old Testament is the oracles of God, which means something God proclaimed. He'll speak of Scripture as breathed out by God. He'll also speak, we'll read a number of passages on the wrath of God where he talks about your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, since we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Let's click through a couple more of these real quick and then we'll address it. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes. Now, question... Does God have temper tantrums? Is the wrath of God... Be real careful. He'll throw a hissy fit. No. And so good theology teaches us to read these scriptures, put them into context, but to take all of them together and to compare and contrast them with Paul's view of the world, to do those three steps we talked about last week. And we begin to understand that when Paul speaks of the wrath of God... Orge is the Greek word. It also means anger. And, and there's a place in Ephesians where Paul says, don't be angry. And then just a few verses later, look out for the anger of God. But the translators don't translate it angry when they say anger of God. They generally will translate it wrath because they're trying to convey to us that this is not the same thing as us just flying off the handle and getting angry. God's not just, God's not a temperamental God in that sense. The concept of the wrath of God is a concept that wrath is the natural consequence of sin and disobedience. It's like if you put your hand in fire, you will get burned. Okay? Sin and disobedience gets the wrath of God. It, it, it merits destruction. It, it's, it's a cancer that's destroyed by God. Um, before we leave anthropomorphisms, you might be saying, well, what about Jesus? Because Jesus is the ultimate anthropomorphism. Jesus is God in human form. 
And when we see Jesus, we see God in some ways. But even there, seeing Jesus does not mean you've seen God exhaustively. Jesus, fully God, fully human, but not exhaustively God. Jesus didn't know some things. He even says, even the Son of Man doesn't know this, only my Father who's in heaven. So we can't create God in the form of a man that we're going to say is Jesus successfully. But we'll talk about that when we reach Paul on Jesus because Paul covers this kind of thing as well. Here's your homework. If you care to, and you don't have to, I'm not going to quiz you next week in obvious ways. The, if your homework is to look for God in these passages... Specifically, we're going to talk about next week God as Father because that's an anthropomorphism. God as Father of Jesus, God as Father of us. And so look for the passages where Paul writes of God as Father and start chewing on them, dwell on them, and we'll look at them together next week. Our points for home. God created man in His image. Let's stop trying to make God in ours. Oh, I want God to be this really nice guy. Well, I mean, God is kind. You can look at Jesus and see that God is kind. But the same Jesus who finds money changers trespassing in his father's temple shows a judgment, a wrath that kicks them out because they don't belong there. You know, Jesus is uh, kind and loving. But he, 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 he can take the adulterous woman at the well and minister to her. But he doesn't go off and couple himself with her. See, God is beyond our ways. And he's higher than we are. And we need to see him for his holiness and respect him for who he is. But we don't ever want to try and create him in our image. That's one reason it's so important to spend time in this book. Because as, as we were told in the beginning definition, God is, has chosen to reveal himself to us. And just because we can't know him fully doesn't mean we can't know him truly. And we can truly know God. Jesus says this is eternal life, that you know God, that you have a relationship with Him in His reality, in who He is. Point two. How unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. And this is where I urge you that He has revealed Himself. And we can know things about Him. And anthropomorphisms are a wonderful tool for teaching. They're great to teach our children. They're great to teach us. But let's don't ever stop there and think that's all there is. Let's read the whole counsel of God's Word and see all the different ways He's revealed Himself to us. And the final point, if the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness... Doesn't that make some sense if we think about it in the way we've discussed it? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. 
the wrath of God. It, it's, don't think in the process of the Bible humanizing God in some ways, don't think that that means that God has temper tantrums and fits. What that means is, is God is going to destroy un-God. Now, what business do we have putting un-God in our life? We who follow God. What business do we have putting un-God in our life? God will destroy it. He absolutely will. It's not going to eternity with you. It's not going to eternity with me. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all un-God. So, where does this leave us? Well, it's, it's an interesting subject. It's one where you know, someone might say to me, Oh no, Mark, you're not taking the Bible literally. And I've always told people, and I've said it in this class, and I'll say it again. I believe the Bible is the inerrant and perfect Word of God in what it claims to be. But we do the Bible and we do God a great injustice if we just simply... Um, if, if we don't understand the majesty of his word and what he's trying to say, if we don't understand that when he says from the mouth of the Lord this comes, his emphasis is not trying to teach us he has a physical mouth. His emphasis is trying to teach us that these are the words of God. And so we need to read this book with understanding. We need to study to show ourselves approved unto God because this book is God's revelation. This shows us what God is as he's chosen to reveal himself. And so as we look next week at Paul, we'll see an aspect, a way God has chosen to reveal himself as both father of Christ and father of us. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Father, we are humbled before you. We're humbled that you would create us, we're humbled that in your love and compassion you reach down and open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see you, to hear you, and to dwell in, in your presence. It is my prayer for every person who hears this class or reads this class that your Holy Spirit will work miraculously that they might um, see you with greater clarity, that they might hear what you have to say to them, that they might understand a bit more fully your presence, and then, Lord, move us in worship as we consider how incredible you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for reaching where we can't reach. In Jesus' name, amen.